One of the things that uh, I've heard more and more people talk about over the last year and a half than really any other time in my ministry is the amount of people coming to terms with their own mortality. I've spent time at the bedside of hospice patients. I've been in the hospital, and, and in those moments, they're, they're wrestling with their own mortality. But for the most part, we do a really good job of keeping ourselves distracted from the reality that we are all going to die one day. We're, we're busy with our work. We have our goals. We're, we're just focused on doing all these other things in hopes, I think, maybe, maybe even subconsciously, that we don't slow down long enough to think about our own mortality. But over this last year and a half, and, and seeing death enter into our society in weird ways that was out of the norm, more and more people that I talked to, this was something that they were beginning to wrestle with. And I'll be honest, for me, about somewhere around 10 years ago, I was trying to put a date to it this week, um, that reality hit me. And, and what I mean by that is like in my mind, I knew I was going to die from early on. But the reality moved from my head to my heart at a certain point. Does that make sense? Some of you are too young and you might not, you might not be there yet. But, but trust me, one day there, there is a moment. And, and it may be when your dad dies or your mom dies. And it, and it sinks in that I'm next. It, it may be when all of your siblings die and you think, I'm all that's left. But what, whatever the trigger, whatever the cause, whatever it is that gets you to that reality, the, the reality of I'm going to die and, and my mortality hits and it moves just a little bit from here to here. What are you going to do? Because it's, it's a whole lot different when it's just a thought. But, but I've seen when it gets down into the heart, it can spin people into a deep, dark depression. Just a hopelessness that it's not going to get any better. And, and maybe that reality hits you because of some chronic condition that you were diagnosed with. And the doctor basically said, hey, we can manage it, but it's never going to get any better. And maybe that was the moment that you realized, well, I'm not going to live forever. I am going to die. And so how do we respond when that reality of our mortality moves from our head to our hearts? What do we, what do we tell our hearts when it finally settles deep in our heart? Well, that's the, that's the aim that David has when he wrote Psalm 31 was for us to learn how to stand strong. That when that moment comes in our lives, when that reality hits us, when we are faced with the tragedy of death, the, the greatest enemy that we all have, are we going to stand strong? He wants us to be strong. Look, look at the end here in verses 23 and 24. I want you to see his main point that he's trying to make here before we get into the rest of the psalm this morning. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And then 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. This is David's argument. This is David's thesis in this psalm. This is what he's trying to to do for himself, but he's also wanting us to do for ourselves this morning. And, and David's talking about a specific kind of strength here. He's talking about this, this inner spiritual strength of trusting God and waiting patiently on him when life turns against you. Walking as a believer, there are so many afflictions that come upon us. But there is a reality that, that we are going to suffer in this world. 
I know I, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in a church that didn't really teach about suffering well. It didn't really teach me how to suffer well. It, it was almost, it was a, there was an underlying teaching, and I don't know that anybody ever said it, but it was if you were suffering, you were probably sinning. And so the way to address your suffering was just fish out that sin. Just do that dig and dig and dig until you find that sin. And it wasn't until I started reading the Bible and realizing that there were people who weren't really sinning who were suffering. And, and it made me realize that, that again, and, and I'm not saying they taught it to me, but it was just a very subtle thing that, that was instilled in me. That if I was suffering, it was because I did something wrong. But the reality is godly people suffer in this world. It's going to happen. We can count on that if we follow Christ. But we can also count on the promise that God will ultimately rescue us. And we need to be strong this morning, and we need to wait for him because he sees you this morning he knows you this morning and he preserves you and cares for you this morning this psalm the, the psalms in general are the most quoted in the bible and this psalm psalm 31 is no exception you find this psalm being quoted both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The prophet Jeremiah quotes the phrase terror on every side in verse 13 no less than six times when he's describing being in danger. Jonah quotes Psalm 31.6 when he's in the belly of the whale. The author of Psalm 71 quotes the opening lines of Psalm 31. And our Lord Jesus most famously quoted Psalm 31, 5, from the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, these were all people who were suffering. God's people who were suffering. And were turning to God's word for that hope. To remember that God sees them, that God cares about them, that God protects them. Jesus identified with David's experience here. In the psalm, and, and he trusted God to save him. This morning, it is my hope, it is my goal that as you listen to this psalm, as you listen to David's affliction and his, his prayers and, and his songs of praise in this psalm, that you too will grow deeper in trusting God, especially when your mortality begins to really move from your head to your heart. So I'm going to break this down, this passage down into four sections. The first two sections are two prayers that David offers. The first one is a prayer of faith in verses 1 through 8. And then second, he offers a prayer of grace in 9 through 18. So a prayer of faith and then a prayer of grace. And then David shifts gears in verses 19 through 22, and he gives us a song of praise. And then he closes with his words of application that we've already read, verses 23 and 24. In other words, how do I take these two prayers and this song and apply them to my life? So let's start with the first one here, a prayer of faith. David says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge, verse 1. Let me never be put to shame. And this, this is a theme. As the Psalms were being put together, I want you to note, notice something as you're studying just in your own personal time. Pay attention to the Psalms that come before and after the Psalm you're reading. Because there's oftentimes a theme that's kind of tying this group of Psalms together. And through this one, it is being ashamed. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means in this passage. But, but if you notice in the, in the Psalms that have kind of been leading up to this and the Psalms after this, there, there's this little thread that, that as the editor compiled and put together the songs in the songbook, he put them together in order for a reason. God, God does everything 
for a reason. And you find these little threads that kind of run through the Psalms as they were put together for public worship and put together for us in God's Word. He goes on and says, In your righteousness, deliver me. Verse 2, Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. There that is, you have seen. See, God sees you. Oftentimes when we're afflicted, when we're in that crisis, we feel what? All alone. David wants us to remember that God sees us. You see, you have seen my affliction You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. David begins this with a prayer of deep faith as he is pleading to God to rescue him. And he uses that word shame, and we normally think of that word shame as an emotion, as a private feeling that we can hide from others. But, but here in this Hebrew context of Psalms 31, the idea of being put to shame has to do with public disgrace. You see, the nation of Israel was an honor and a shame culture. And what that means is, is that whenever you were seen to be acting virtuous, you were honored. When you were caught acting the opposite, you were shamed. When you're the king and you go out to battle and you win the battle, what do you get? Honor. But what happens if you lose? Shame. This is an objective state. This isn't just a subjective, I I feel ashamed. This is, you know it, right? It's, It's very public and very aware. So as an Israelite, when I am following God's word, I am honored. When I am sleeping with other people's wives and I'm killing their husbands, I am shamed, right? It's not a feeling. It's it's an objective state that David has experienced. And, And here he's crying out to God. And he's saying, let me never be put to shame. If you're put to shame, you're disgraced before others as a sign of God's judgment. And, and, and I think this is where that subtle message I was talking about in the intro got, got into my life, is understanding the kind of culture that they live in, being different than our culture. But, but it's like, okay, well, if I'm suffering, then that must mean I've done something wrong, right? And because of that, I'm being publicly shamed. Everyone can see my shamefulness because I'm suffering, but this is, this is a totally different time, a totally different culture that David is speaking to and, and crying out to God, God, don't let me be put ashamed. In other words, don't let me lose to these enemies. If, if I do, I'll be humiliated. And in turn, you'll be humiliated. To be put to shame means a humiliation before God and man. It's hard when people judge you. But it's especially hard when people judge you for something you don't do. David didn't deserve the public shame and the disgrace because he was faithful to God. He trusted God to rescue him and to rescue his reputation. But even more, our Lord Jesus didn't deserve shame and disgrace. You see, Jesus was perfectly obedient in every aspect of the law. He did everything right. There was no reason for his objective public shaming hanging naked on a tree. 
for the whole world to see. Suffering and dying and agonizing death for something he didn't do. He was perfectly obedient and pleased God in everything. And by quoting this psalm, Jesus trusted God to rescue him and to clear his name publicly as well. And God didn't put Jesus to shame, did he? He honored him. Before all the world, raising him from the dead. David's faith comes out as he's praying this prayer. Especially in in verses 2 through 5. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock and a refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. These these verses are interesting because David asked God to basically be what God already is. You you catch that? He's asking God to be his rock because he is his rock. He's asking God to be his fortress because he is his fortress. He commits his life to God because God has already redeemed him. See, David, David is calling on God to be exactly what he already is. Last week in our small groups, we were talking about the attributes of God, and it's, it's good to study those and understand those so that you can do the same thing, that, that you can God, be sovereign in this moment. Be omnipotent. Be all-knowing in this moment. I need you to be who you are. So why does David ask God to do or to be something that he already is? Well, David is claiming here to personally what he knows about God. These are the things that he has experienced about God. Spurgeon said we should learn from this that we may pray to enjoy and experience what we grasp by faith. We may pray to enjoy and experience what we grasp by faith. See, what David is doing is he's saying, I know these things about you, but I need that to move down into my heart. And I need to experience those things about you. It's not just about head knowledge. I can know all kinds of things about God. But until it moves from here to my heart and I actually experience it, I have a a move in my heart of experience that God is my refuge, I really don't know that God is my refuge. And so David is saying, look, I I know this about you. I comprehend this. I can take a test and, and fill out all the right answers. But I need to know this about you. I need to feel and experience this about you. This isn't just about my head. It's about my heart. I know it by faith, but I want to experience it in life. Hence Spurgeon saying, we may pray to enjoy and experience what we're grasping by faith. We need to pray with our hearts what our minds already know. When we pray by faith, we we ask God to be things to us personally that He says He is. Do we believe that God is our strength? By faith, we ask God to be our strength when we are weak. Do we believe that God works everything together for our good? Romans 8, 28. Then by faith, we ask God to work. When we have an unexpected job loss, we we ask God, okay, this is what your word says, right? You, You say you work all things for good, so you must have a better job for me lined up somewhere. You must have some better opportunity for me that I'm just not seeing and you you needed to pull this away from me so that I would be able to see it. Do 
Do we believe that God is good and he works all things for good when we don't have enough money to pay the grocery bill? Or a medical bill? Or mortgages coming due? We ask God to be our provider. Why? Because he is our provider. Everything we have comes from him. He is our provision. And so we ask for those things. Things we know, we're asking in faith that, they, that we would experience those things. And one of the things that I love, love, love about sitting with people and, and counseling them and, and just walking through life with them is hearing these stories. It's hearing about this rebate check that I got out of the blue that I wasn't expecting that helped me buy groceries this week for my family. Or, or there was this thing where I overpaid accidentally six months ago and they finally caught up with it and it just happened to come this week, the week I'm short, and God provided for me. Oh man, I love that. I, I enjoy that so much, just seeing God provide for people. Because there's a lot of times, I'll be honest with you, I'm sitting there thinking, how can I provide for this person? How can I help this person? And there's a lot of times I can't. Whether just financially it's just not possible for me or, or for us as a church. And, and, and yet God just, he just delivers. He just delivers. I mean, just, just this week, one of, one of our own people in the church was in a car accident. And you think, that's no big deal. Yeah, but, but the insurance had been canceled. But it got reinstated the morning of the accident. He's our provider, right? He, he just, he, he has a way of showing up when we need him the most. Especially when we start grasping by faith and asking to experience that. See, some of you haven't experienced this because you got it taken care of. You plan, you, you, you make your stuff, and you, you just do it yourself. And so you're hearing these, these stories, you're like, man, that sounds cool. I'd love to see a God like that. Well, listen, here's what you got to do. <laughs> There's got to be some bad times. <laughs> but but when, we, when we start moving from just head knowledge about God and we, we're actually experiencing God as our provider, as the one who is ultimately in control of every aspect of our life, who, who is our strength. When we, when we stop being our strength and we let him be our strength, we see amazing things. By faith, David claims for himself what he already knows about God. This morning, I want to challenge you. Are you claiming for yourself all the things you already know about God? Don't, don't worry about learning anything new. Just take what you know, and are you claiming that and applying that in your own life this morning by prayer? This kind of faith is never more crucial than at the moment of death. You know, sitting beside people and watching them pass from this life to the next life, I've noticed some things. You know one of the things I've noticed? I have never had a political discussion. Not one. We didn't, we didn't talk about sports teams. We didn't talk about the latest TV show and what's going to happen. You see, your priorities change pretty dramatically when you're laying on a hospice bed. Different things start to matter all of a sudden. More, way more than they ever mattered before. And for many... It boils down to a couple of things. Their relationship with God, or lack thereof. And their relationship with their family, or lack thereof. Those are the two things I talk about the most when I'm sitting in a hospice bed, or sitting in the hospital with somebody who's just been diagnosed with a chronic illness. Funny how your priority changes, right? Oftentimes the things that people talk about the least are the things they talk about the most. And the things they talk about the most... We don't ever talk about them. 
When, when we experience those moments in our life, when we, when we get, David, David had a lot of them. I don't know if you noticed this yet about the Psalms. David had a lot of moments of death. There was a lot of times that, that if we didn't serve a God that didn't miss, right, David would have been a goner. I mean, David's hiding in a cave that the guy looking for him walks into to use the bathroom. Right? He, he could have been a goner right then. But God had a plan. God was working through his life. But David experienced lots of moments of like, is this it? The lightning's popping all around and I'm standing in the field. But it wasn't his time yet. Because God doesn't miss. And, and David, in those moments, wrestled with his own mortality. And where David ran to was to his God, to his refuge, to his strength, to his provider. The word spirit here in verse 5 is the very life of a person. In other words, the, the animating force that makes us alive. Since David is entrusting his spirit to God, he is convinced that God is able to continue life even after his body dies. This is why Jesus quoted these words when he hung on the cross. It's a powerful declaration of his belief in the resurrection. The previous psalm, Psalm 30, is a resurrection psalm. It talks about the resurrection, and the hope of the resurrection is at the heart of Psalm 31 as well. Because life doesn't end at death. God promises to extend it beyond the grave. And then we see in these last two verses a, a prayer from David's heart. David's faith was not just a mental exercise. He trusted in God with his heart, his emotions, and his whole being. I, I hate those who regard the worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy you set my feet in a broad place. We really see David's heart in these verses. He had no patience for people that worshipped anything other than God. All these people who were idolaters and just seeking after worship of all these other things, he just had no patience for that. And so many times we're, we're tempted in our life to, to imitate successful people that we see in this world. And many of those successful people are chasing after the idols of, of money and wealth and success and career and, and influence and reputation. And so many times we're tempted to just imitate that and to do the same thing. We, we'll Christianize it, we'll call it Christian, but we're really just chasing and pursuing what everybody else is pursuing. Sometimes we do it because we want their approval, but David... That was not something he was into. <laughs> David's like, I want no part of that. I, anything that those, the, the ungodly are doing and chasing after, I, I don't want to be associated with that. In, in fact, he uses the language that I hate that. Right? It's strong language. He hated them for hating God. If God has saved you, if God is your refuge, there's, there is a sense in which you cannot love those who despise him. They, they insult God who has been so good to you. Now, if, if we ended the Old Testament and that was the end of our Bible, then that would be pretty easy for us because hate, let's be honest, it comes pretty easy. But then the New Testament comes along. And math, or in Mark 12, 21, it says, love your neighbors as yourself. We, we care for unbelievers. We're good to them. We, we want the best for them. Why? Because we pray for their salvation. That is the best for them, right? Now, we can't embrace them. We, we can't identify with them as long as they hate our God. But, but that doesn't mean that we don't love them, and we don't pray for them, and we don't care for them, and we don't serve them and help them. The difference is we just can't identify with them. For so many people, it's just easier to say, you know what, I, I just, I'm going to hate those people. 
That's easy for me. I can just not be a part. I can not be around and my life can be better. And yet, that's that's not what we're called to do. Jesus walked in amongst sinners. You're only here because Jesus reached out to a sinner and saved you. Hence, we are to go into the world making disciples of every nation, tribe, and tongue. All those nations are filled with what? Sinners, people who hate God, people who are idolaters. That's our mission, folks. Now, we can't identify with them, but we can love them, and we can serve them, and we can minister to them. And by doing that, it doesn't mean we're, we're woke all of a sudden because we love them and we care for them, as long as we don't identify with them. David He sang for joy in verse 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. It's the steadfast love. This, This is one of those themes that you see throughout the Psalms. It's referring to God's covenant love, His covenant loyalty, that God has bound Himself to His people like a husband to his wife. And he's faithful to keep his promises. So David rejoiced and was glad. God showed covenant love for David in four things. We see in verse 7 and 8. First, as I mentioned, God sees. God sees you this morning. If you're here this morning, you think, man, I've been hiding from God. He doesn't know where I'm at. I'm off his radar. That's not true. God sees you. God also saw you last night doing whatever it was you were doing last night. He also saw you Friday night doing whatever you were doing Friday night. But listen, some of you people, he also sees you Monday morning when you totally forget him and you start pursuing work and money and career. He also saw that too. We have a God who sees us. But not only that, we have a God who knows us. He knows David's distress. He knows what's going on in his life. He knows where you are struggling. He knows the sins that you are trying so hard to kick, but you just can't do it on your own power. Third, God did not hand him over to the enemy. God didn't give up on David. And fourth, he sets his feet in a broad place. Now, what what does this mean, a broad place? Well, if you're in the countryside of Israel and you're, you're walking along the edge of a cliff and you have this narrow path that you're walking along and you're you're kind of hugging up against the mountain on one side and you're looking down into the valley of the other side. What wouldn't you give for a broader path, right? A little bit more margin of error. That'd be nice, right? And and so that's the picture that David is painting here. It's a picture that God is leaving, leading David into a place of safety and security. Rather than being hugged up against this mountain and one wrong step, one loose rock, and he's off the edge, it's now a wide path. My, My anxiety level is coming way down now. My fear is coming way down. It's a place of safety and security. But notice, God doesn't change his circumstances. Verse 9, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Where's David still at? In distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. See, David knows by faith that God has seen him and is protecting him even leading him through death. Men and women in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, they didn't receive the things God promised in this life either. They welcomed them from a distance and waited to receive them in the next life. David has the same kind of faith. He sings for joy because God loves him, even though he has not yet received the things that God promised. Christ, too, looked forward 
on that cross. He looked forward beyond the humiliation. He looked beyond the shame. He looked beyond the death to the joy that was set before him. If you and I are going to be strong this morning, if we're going to face that moment of our mortality, we're going to have to look past it. We can't keep our focus on it. If we do, we will be weak. It's only when we're looking past death and to the next life and understanding what God has in store and waiting for us, then we, like David, can be strong. We, like Jesus, can be strong. We can even sing praise songs as we pass from this life to the next. Because we have a Father. who sees us, who knows us, who will never ultimately hand us over to the enemy, and who will set our feet in a broad place. The next prayer that David prays is a prayer of grace. After that prayer of faith, David prays for God's grace and favor. And I love, man, I love David because... He's just so realistic, right? Be gracious to me, verse 9. O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Isn't it awesome to know that you can pray in faith and still dissolve in a flood of tears that soaks your bed because you are crying? And your, your body and your soul is just wasting in this grief. David knows that God has delivered him and will deliver him. And yet, David is honest with us. David shares his emotions with us and shows us what it looks like to trust him. One of the worst things, one of the worst things you can ever do to another Christian is to not cry when they are going through something really hard. It makes me sick to my stomach when someone says, have faith. Don't get all emotional. Just have faith. You, you need to have more faith. You going to tell King David that? You going to tell Jesus that? You're more godly than them? You're more spiritual? You're more biblical than the Son of God Himself? Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice, but mourn with those who mourn. You can have faith and mourn and be in grief at the same time. It is possible. And sometimes the situations in our life are so overwhelming. Sometimes they come on so fast that we don't have a chance to do anything else but grieve. Cry with those brothers and sisters in Christ. Weep with those who are weeping. David trusted God, and yet his eye was wasted with grief. Jesus trusted his father, but he wept at Lazarus' tomb. Even though he knew he would raise Lazarus. Why? Listen, folks. Corinthians reminds us our greatest enemy is death. And the good news is, one day, death will be put to death. Our greatest enemy will die. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. But until then, it's an enemy we all face. It's an enemy that takes our loved ones from us. It's an enemy that takes our spouses from us. And it's okay to grieve that. It's okay to cry. It's okay to have your, your bed covered in tears. You can do that and still have faith in God. 
And brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we need to come around those people when that is happening. And we, need to, we don't need to tell them to suck it up and get over it. That's what the world tells them. We, need, we are supposed to grieve with those who are grieving, rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Love them, point them to Christ, but grieve with them. Care for them. We can, we can believe with all our heart that God will raise our loved one from the grave and still cry because they are gone. We, we are robbed of that time with them. David then catalogs his distress in verses 10 through 13 in this prayer of grace. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. This is one of those sections of Scripture where it's best if you actually read it backwards. And you start with the end and work your way back up. David starts with anguish he feels and then he moves to the cause. So it's, it's important for us to understand and we'll understand his anguish better when we understand the cause better. David's main problem is that he was surrounded by enemies. Right? People... In verse 13, people whispering in the corner, right? Walking into the room and everybody hushing up and, and not saying anything. And, and they were planning to take his life. You've seen this sort of thing, I'm sure, right? You've experienced this. You, you've come across a room and come into a room and the conversation suddenly stops, right? You begin to wonder who your friends are, who can I trust? Especially if this happens over a period of time and it's not anywhere near your birthday, right? Be careful about that one. That one will get you. That one will throw you. But, but you know, this is happening over a period of time. And, and you start to, to wonder. And, and, and for David, this isn't just like, oh, they don't like me anymore. This is like they're going to kill me. <laughs> right? So it's a little bit more serious than most of us probably ever experience. In his younger years, he had to flee from Saul when people whispered about him and planned to kill him then. Once his wife left a, a large idol in his bed to fool them into thinking that he was still asleep. 1 Samuel 19, 13. His son Absalom whispered against him and tried to take the throne. His own, his own son tried to kill him. And, and because of this danger, even his friends turned his back on him. Many of you have experienced this. You, you go along life, and as long as you are successful, as long as you are prosperous, you've got a lot of friends. People just want to be around you. As long as you can do things for people, they want to know you. As long as they can see some benefit in, in being in relationship to you, they want to be around you. They go out of their way to say hey to you, to get your attention, right? So you'll notice them. But the minute tragedy strikes your life, these people are like cockroaches. They're just gone when the light comes on, right? They just, they're running. And so many times I sit with so many people who are suffering in the midst of, of some huge financial loss, some huge physical loss. Some huge personal loss. And one of the things they say is, I thought there would be more people here. I thought I'd have more of my friends here. But there's nobody. They're all gone. When it becomes dangerous to know you, they avoid you like the plague. Of course, our Lord Jesus experienced this, right? When he fed the crowds, free food, man. You can draw a crowd with free food. 
You can have thousands of people coming. You giving out barbecue? They're going to be there. Right? But when he stood trial before Pilate, how many thousands of people showed up to his defense? None. What did those thousands yell then? Crucify him. Get rid of him. He's no good to us anymore. Even his closest disciples ran away from him. Most of them denied that they even knew him. The stress and rejection can take a toll on a person. And, and David has almost crumbled under the pressure of that. Verse 10, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. These might seem like overstating his case, but they described a real grief that many of you have experienced when you've been betrayed by someone closest to you. I know I've experienced that. When grief and stress go on for years, it can become truly debilitating. David's experience in his grief and in his sorrow pointed forward to Jesus, the ultimate man of sorrows. David had suffered so much at the hands of so many treacherous people that he felt like he just couldn't take it anymore, that his body literally was going to collapse. Jesus was betrayed even more wickedly. And we see a similar response from his body in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He, he sweat drops of blood as he was dealing with the agony that he was facing of the abandonment, of, of the, the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders. It, it created a physical response. And yet neither Christ nor David ever gave up their faith in God. They stood strong, which is what we need to do this morning. Is we need to stand strong in our faith. David goes on to continue to call out for grace with confidence that God will hear him. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. When David says that my time my times are in your hand. He, he's not just like, you know, giving up. Going, well, it's going to be whatever it's going to be. It's just it's going to happen, whatever's going to happen. Right? That's not, that's not what he's doing. He's, he, he's not trying to become some like mystic person and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm releasing myself from, from any expectations. You know, that, that's not what he's doing here. here here's a declaration of trust. My hands are in your time. You are sovereign. My path has been appointed for me. I am trusting in you. That, that's what David's doing here in this section. Again, in verse 14, he's claiming a personal relationship with God. You are my God. You are not the God. You are not a God. You are my God. And God will rescue him because of his steadfast love. David point, the, the point is that David trusts God to do it in his own timing. Not in David's timing. Lord, in other words, he's saying, Lord, rescue me when you know the time is best. Now, most of us would like a rescue right now. 
right? Can we fix it now? Now, now, now? How about now? Okay, how about now? But David is saying, look, Lord, I'm trusting you that you know the time that it is best for me. And the reality is, for some of us, we may not be rescued in this life. And even if we go to the grave, we are still waiting for that promise. And I'm going to trust in you. My time are in your hands. It's another way of saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. God's hands are the safest place in the world for us. There's no better place to put our life. There's no better person to trust our life with. This is a comfort for us. If someone that we love has been taken away from us. God's hands are the safest place to deposit the treasure of my earthly life. By faith, we can grow and learn to say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. My times are in your hands. And by faith, we can trust God to punish those who do wrong. David's confidence also leaves judgment in God's hands. We, we oftentimes not only want things fixed now, but we want to be the, the bringer of judgment on our enemies, right? Whoever that may be. We, we want to do that. And David is saying, not only am I trusting my life with you, not only am I trusting the time that things are going to happen in my life, but I'm also trusting you with the judgment. O oh Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Right? They've been whispering and talking about me. Shut their mouths. Make a mute. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Sometimes I know in our life, one of the things that we can struggle with and seem to think is so unfair is how the wicked live these long lives sometimes. And not only do they live these long lives, but people celebrate them. And after they die, they name cities after them and roads after them and monuments after them. They never seem to experience the public disgrace, the shame that David's talking about here. The shame that they all deserve for what they've done. But remember, God is not limited to death. In the same way as we approach death, we need to look past death to the broad place that he has waiting for us to be able to get through it. When we think about judgment, sometimes that person that has done and treated you so wickedly may be celebrated their entire life, but God's not limited to death. There's also a time of judgment coming for those who are wicked after death. As one person put it, the long arm of God's law reaches beyond the grave to disgrace the wicked forever in the afterlife. He has shame and judgment in store to everyone who speaks against him and his people. David finally, though, moves away from prayer and into praise. He praises God for his goodness. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. God stores up good for his people, David says. If you're a, 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 a Christian here this morning, you can just imagine this storehouse that is just filled with row upon row and shelf upon shelf of goodness stored up just for you. God has a blessing, has blessings upon blessing waiting for his people. 
And he will give them to us before the eyes of the world. By faith, if we believe that the universe will stand in awe of the good things that God gives to his beloved. As Christians, death is not the end for us. God's goodness is stored up for us. He stores it up in his shelter. He, he protects it like a work of art in a secure vault. We receive his goodness today, of course, but we receive it in the midst of trouble and anguish and pain and suffering. And yet one day we can, with David, say, how abundant is your goodness. Again, notice that God hasn't taken David out of his trouble. And yet God, David blesses God. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously slow, shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I'd set in my alarm, in my alarm, I cut, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for you, to, to you for help. As a man of war, David had probably been under siege many times. The lies that surrounded him made him feel the same way. As though he was in a battle and he was under siege. He, he had all of these lies, all of these voices speaking against him. And David is relating it to that. Going, that that's how I feel. I feel like I'm under siege this morning. And maybe that's where some of you are. He was so terrified, and maybe you are too, because of all the accusations and the deceit that you are feeling. But David reminds us this morning that God hears and God saves. And that ends us with this, verses 23 and 24, where we started. Love the Lord, always saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. If you're a Christian, you need to trust God when things get hard. Be strong. Wait for the Lord. Your time, your times are in his hands. He rescued Christ. He'll rescue you. He'll rescue every single one who belongs to Christ. And the goodness that he has stored up, it's, it's so much that it'll last for eternity. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for just allowing us to know that we have a God who sees us who hears us, who understands us, and cares for us so much that, that we'll never be ultimately turned over to the enemy. That you have prepared a broad place for us. And Father, this morning I pray that we would learn to stand strong and, and rest in the promises that we find here in this verse. And Lord, I especially ask that as we stand at that moment of realizing our own mortality, that we are going to die. It, it's not just a thought, it's a reality. Lord, that, that we would be able to stand strong and what David says here in this passage. That we have a God who loves us. A God who knows us. That we will, we will call out in faith and, and, and claim those things we know about you. That you do work all things for good. That you are our provider. That every breath, every year, Every minute that we have is, is a gift from you. 
and that our times are in your hands and we can trust you. Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.